This is Stories of New Americans with Ron Clutho, featuring inspirational and fascinating personal stories of people from all corners of the globe who are now in St. Louis. We'll take a look at the U.S. through newcomers' eyes, get some insight into world history and cultures, and maybe learn something about ourselves. Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Okay, welcome back to Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL 101.994.1. Uh, tonight we have a guest from the country of Burundi, Nioyakira Rosinetti. Did yes. I say that right? Yes. Also known as Rosie. That's a lot easier for most of us. <laughs> and uh, you're from Burundi. Yes, I'm from Burundi. Which is, I think a lot of Americans are familiar with Rwanda, but maybe not so much Burundi, although they have really similar stories and situations, cultures too, right? Yeah. Tell us, first of all, where Burundi is on the map. So Burundi is located in the in the middle, in the East African, in the middle of uh, Tanzania and uh Rwanda, then Congo. Those are the three countries, the Nomadiboro, Burundians. Okay. And just, I think the language is Kirundi. Yes. And the language of Rwanda is Kinyarwanda, but they're almost the same, right? Yes, like, I would say probably like 90% are similar. Okay. So you can understand somebody from Rwanda pretty well? I can understand them. Okay. <laughs> so, it, but it depends, like, uh, basically which side like you're coming from. If you live in the middle of Burundi, mm-hmm. then you can pick it up most of the words. But if you live like by um, Gitega, that's where they kind of border Rwanda. Okay. So you kind of... So they're kind of like dialects. Yeah, dialects with each okay. other. And then also the the ethnic makeup is, or quote-unquote ethnic makeup is similar. People are, a lot of people, if they're familiar with Rwanda, they've heard of Hutu and Tutsi, and there's also a, sec- a third group called the Twa. And I believe, from what I understand, it's even percentage-wise, it's really similar. 85% Hutu, 14% Tutsi, and 1% Twa in both Rwanda and Burundi. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> the Twa make the yeah, the minority. Yeah. And um, t- let's talk a little bit about these groups, the Hutu and the Tutsi. Are they, they're, they're not really ethnic. They're more economic. and or what, What's the story? So, like, uh, before, like, colonization, there was more of economic. Like, right now, though, like, the Twa and Tutsis and uh, Hutus, it's more of, like, partition with two kind of categorized people. So it's more political than yes, ethnic now? Yes, than ethnics right now. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that traditionally the Hutu were mostly farmers, whereas the Tutsi were mostly Cow. herders, cattle yes. herders. And cattle rep- represented wealth, I guess, right? Correct. <laughs> so like, basically, like the more cow you had, the more worth you had. Mm-hmm. So then, like, uh, for the Hutus, it was more about farming than actually do cutting stuff. Uh-huh. Then for the Twa, it was mostly, like, hunting. That's what it was known for. Okay. Back, back before colonization. But after, after during colonization, it kind of shifted. 
Okay. So it became more of how like to control groups. Yeah. So by creating the identification cards, it was more effective way to kind of get in control. Divide and conquer, yeah. we might call it here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what I, I guess Germany. Well, let's say that Rwanda and Burundi both were kingdoms for centuries. They had a, it was, it was a, there was a royal family, which I think was Tutsi and Burundi, basically. But um, they, they were kind of independent kingdoms until the Germans were the first to come in in the late 19th century. And then after World War One, after Germany was defeated, Belgium took kind off. of took over, sort of, I guess, as a, I don't know, because Germany was defeated, they were punished by having the world powers remove their colonies, I guess. But um, I think Belgium and maybe Belgium more than Germany kind of, ex as you said, exploited these differences between people to kind of make it easier to control them, right? Yes. So it was it was easier for them. Like before, you didn't know who your neighbor probably was. Then after that, basically the identification card, you get to know who your neighbor is and they bring more, I'm a better than you that, situation. That happened so many times in conflicts around the world. When, when differences are magnified or exploited, people that lived peacefully kind of get, that uh, just causes division. When it's, it's, you see that so many times. Yeah, but it, it just mentality-wise, it's just some, somehow like to control someone, you have to tell them what do you think they're better than the other. Yeah. So basically by them giving them the identification cards, it was the easier way for them to be like, well, I'm better than you and, and I can do, I, I have more access. Like yeah. basically it's like you're more worthy than what I am. Yeah. So you look you, like, if like neighbors used to like each other, now they tend to be like, I'm not in your class and you're not in my class. Mm -hmm. So hatred starts coming in. Yeah. So like by like doing the kingdom part, like there was not much hit interest. Mm -hmm. Then after or during the identification cards. Yeah, and I I understand that the Belgians kind of uh, kind of let the Tutsi kingdom continue and sort of uh, favored the Tutsi and put the Hutu down, which caused a lot of you know, anger maybe on the Hutus. I believe so because as you, as like normal, even when you've seen normal life, uh, if you take one, because like before, like it was everything together. Like even though like um, the Hutus was in the control, the Tutsis was in the control, but there was some Hutus within the, 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 the kingdom. Yeah. But then like after the identification card, you get to know I am not who, I am, yeah. then it's more of you start pushing me away. Like yeah. basically they start pushing each other. Yeah. Which brought a lot of big conflict. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's political. I think um, similar things happen in Bosnia actually with with different minor differences just being magnified for political reasons. Yeah. And um I know this this happened before you were born but you know America we know about the genocide in Rwanda in 70 I mean in 90 94 mm -hmm. but then there was a similar situation in Burundi in the in the 
70s, right? Yeah, 1972. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know much like uh, about it, but like I know that the Sparkle Sparkle after like they chose, they elected the Hutu president. Well, yeah, let's go back a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Burundi became independent in 62, I think, right? The Bel- they got independence from Belgium in 62, and then there was a kind of a supposedly representative government, but... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so this happened after independence. Yeah, that's kind of like after independence. I believe there was like two presidential. Okay. Before, like after then, uh, the gen- started like the killing. Yeah. After the president was assassinated. Yeah, there was a Hutu president that was assassinated. Yes. And then there was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the the, the Hutus. Um, killed a number of Tutsi sort of, I guess, as revenge for that. But then the Tutsi-dominated government actually killed many more Hutus after that, sort of as a reprisal. And that was the one of the big, I don't know. The big, like, it, it sparkled like a big, like, migration and refugees in Tanzania. Right, that, yeah. So we, you know, you and I both have worked in refugee resettlement here. And we know, you know, there was a, wave of Burundian refugees that came here, I guess, about 15 years ago to St. Louis. Yeah, 2007. Yeah. And they were living in that camp in Tanzania. Some of them were born there. You were almost born there. The majority kids actually (laughs) were born there. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's let's kind of move into your story then. um, This was all happened before you were born, but um, I think your parents... what what did what was your family situation in all this? Yeah, like uh, it was kind of a f- it affected my family a lot because you know my family are really Christian. They don't have that much like uh, they don't go into partition stuff. Mm-hmm. But just like after the president was uh, killed, it was a red flag for them to leave because it brought a lot of chaos. So that's when they live in Tanzania and have my other siblings before they had me. That, now, that happened before you were born. Before I was born. And so. they stayed there for a while. Then you said they came back. Yeah, they stayed there a while, and they went back in Burundi. But, but no, you, And your family, they didn't live in a camp. They lived with relatives in Tanzania, right? Yeah. So at first, Stalin, they live at the border Yeah. with like family members. Then like they stay there, you know, like mostly as we know, partition will tell you peace is running, <laughs> it's coming. Peace is coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so last words. Yeah, they came back. Uh, they spent there probably like a year. Mm-hmm. They realize it's not what it seems like. This is right around the time that the other genocide was so happening in Rwanda. Rwanda, right? yes. So it, then that's when I actually I was born, 1995. <laughs> Yeah, you were born in 1995, <laughs> and then you—you you don't remember this, obviously, but you, as when you were a very young baby, child, your family fled again and yeah. went to the camp. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So basically, after like um, I was living probably 11 months or something, that's what my mom said. So they went back in. Uh, they went back at the border, mm-hmm. but life was really hard. So it was not like before. So now, like, uh, it's a lot of people who are 
Friedhing again. Hutu and Tutsi, probably. Uh, probably. My, all of it. Both of them had to free because it was a genocide basically going on in there. So as, a, as we already said, like, Burundi is like in the middle of, it's like borders Gwanda and Tanzania. Yeah. So as we know, like, it, it's like basically like Mexican, the Mexico and the, like border and mm. the United States border. So it's like people who live probably from uh, Rwanda, fleeing in, in Burundi, but situation have been similar because this was kingdomship and have similar uh, culture and history, mm-hmm. just a slight of difference. Mm-hmm. So it was easier for them to go back and forth. So, but with the genocide situation, Burundi was not better either. So it was easier for Burundians and the fear, the fear and the tension of like what is going on in Rwanda. Yeah. Even like the Burundian people start fleeing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. when like now like a lot of wave of refugees was flooding in uh, in Tanzania, and I believe they opened up four different camps for for those uh, refugees. Okay, so your family... But our our family was living in Induta camp. Okay, and then how did they physically get there from Burundi? Did they go Wolf. on foot? On they foot. walked. How far would that have been? For days. Days. It was your days. Your mom carrying you. My mom carrying me. And you had other siblings I have too. another siblings, and in the process, I lost a brother. How did that happen? Uh, my parents said they got ill, so... Oh, he died on the way there? Yeah. Oh. So... It was kind of a tough situation, like carrying a sick baby oh my gosh. with other small, because like me and my siblings, uh, at that time probably I was I'm a I'm a fifth child, so it was like five of us. Mm. So, How old was the oldest? Uh, I believe probably like thirteen or fourteen. Oh my gosh! Because I was just a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my my uh the third. The third born is eight years older than me. So. Okay. Wow. So it was like a really hard time. Like people die in the process of. There were uh, hundreds of people walking, I guess. Yeah, right? a hundred, hundred people walking. Okay. So it wasn't easy. And like, it's not like you just walking, you have to hide, run, mm. hide, and run. Mm-hmm. Because you even have to cross a border. It's not like the border is welcoming you, they need security. Okay, so to. to Yeah, it's really hard. All right, we need to take a short break here, but we'll come back in a minute and continue this discussion. Um, You're listening to Stories of New Americans on 101.99. Stories of New Americans. Brought to you in part by Arnell's Hardwoods. For all of your laminate and hardwood flooring needs, call them at 314 397 3252. Stories of New Americans. Brought to you in part by the Indoor Comfort Team. For all of your heating and cooling needs, call the Indoor Comfort Team at 314 230 9542. You're listening to Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Okay, welcome back. We're talking with uh, Rosie. I'm not going to say her full Burundian name because it's too hard. 
And you were talking about how your family uh, fled to Tanzania and then wound up in a refugee camp. And I know do, I know you don't remember actually going there, but you basically grew up there. Yes. So can you talk about what that was like? Yeah, growing up in Tanzania, like for kids, it was really fun. On in the camp. In the camp. Really. It was. You had a lot of freedom. That's when you realize your parents are not. <laughs> you, there's no fence. There's no like basically police behind you chasing kids. So it's like. It's like a playground. You wake up every day just like having fun. And like uh, there's a lot of different fruits. We actually used to go in the bushes and get fruits for free. <laughs> so you had freedom to leave the camp to get? No. 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 Like you actually have to stay within the camp. But there were places to there collect? Was, yes. there was. It, the camp was way too big. Mm-hmm. Um the only place that you probably won't go, as long as you don't cross the border of Tanzania, oh. going back where you come from, then that was the challenge. But for parents, it was really hard. Like yeah. Now as an adult sitting and kind of refreshing, like what happened, because I lived there for approximately 10 years. So it wasn't easy for my mom or my dad, because I remember my mom w- would take us to, like, they go for farming because there is a native uh, Tanzanian people. We used to call them Ubaha. Ubaha means people from here. Okay. <laughs> so they would normally um, hire like uh, refugees to to farm for them. Oh. Yes. So they'll pay them a little wage. Okay. Or like in exchange, you probably they'll give them food. Oh. Because the UN, it was really the it was really complicated. Because imagine in a family of, you have, you probably like, you know, there's no parents, parent in the camp for real. So people having kids every single year. So a family, you find a family with 10 kids, 12 kids. How can you feed 12 kids and educate them? So like uh, the system they had in in the camp was basically the, the Burundian system. We were not allowed to study with uh, Tanzanians. It kind of was segregated from their school. Did you have a school in the camp? Or we some had we had we had some type of schooling. Okay, but it was professional. <laughs> it was not. I can't quote it was professional because it was not. Were was it just other refugees in the camp that it was only to be teachers that yes. were helping you out as yes. much as they could? Yes. So the UN will kind of found and pay those teachers. Okay. But sometimes they won't get paid. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it was the UN and not providing the money or like this, the camp leaders not providing the yeah. money. And sometimes we'll go days without. Yeah. The UN kind of ran the camp then, right? Yes. Okay. They give were, us there, food. were there um, international, I don't know, UN people on the in the camp kind of? Overseeing it, or was it mostly local Tanzanians it who ran t- it? That that was the problem. Oh, <laughs> so like basically there was. Uh, I I wish like they had actually the UN people actually getting interact with with uh with the refugees because the refugees in Tanzania at that time they had a lot of needs. So, but the people who was running basically there was Tanzanians. So some of the resources it wasn't reaching the people. Oh. Who are supposed to actually get the resources? Because I remember there's a time, like, the teachers wasn't in pay, and we were just going the streets, praying around. 
and there will be time when it's time the UN will probably bring the books, oh. the notebooks, but we won't give the notebooks until like probably a week later after the like kids protest. Like we need the books. What did the kids do for fun when there was no school? Did you play games? Play games. Did you have like soccer balls or toys? We make soccer ball out uh, plastic bags. Okay. <laughs> so when you wrap around, they play games. They play jumping rope. They have all type of games to keep kids entertained. Mm. And like as if like that time there's no school, as I said, parents don't have no option to do a little farming on their own. Did uh, were there people from many countries there or only from Burundi? No, I believe it was everybody. I I got realized like it was not only Burundian when I got here. Because back in the camp there was no such thing, who are you? It was, let's work together, let's survive. But you spoke different languages too, though, right? No. Were there people from, like, I don't know, Congo? Somalia? or No, no, there was no Somalian people. Like, basically, the people who normally would live in the camp is people who fled from Congo because there was a war too. Uh, people who fled from uh, Rwanda, people who fled from Burundi, those was the okay. main three people, three countries and <laughs> in the camp. <laughs> the people that came from Congo may have been people that had fled from Burundi or Rwanda before, right? Mm-hmm. Any of them? Mm-hmm. No? So, so I w- they, the way it works is, as I have explained, like for people who really don't understand geographic, it would say like, um, I would say like Mexico and uh, Texas. So it's like you're kind of going back and forth. It's a movement. <laughs> so it's not like, so like, when like Rwanda had a problem, people would flee from Rwanda go to Congo. So when the Congo is facing economic, economic change, it will switch it up. Mm. So Burundian too, will, like there's Burundian people who live in in Rwanda, there's Burundian people who live in Congo. It's like a circle. So it's like, if I think I ha- I'm going to get a better life living in Congo, I will go to Congo. And people who from Congo, they think that they will get a better life living in Burundi. They go to Burundi, mm. so <laughs> it's like a chain. Mm-hmm. It's a back and forth. So that's why, like, I, I, I had mentioned, like, in in Tanzania, there was like almost, I believe, like four four uh, different camps. Oh. So, but the camps I lived in, I believe, majority was Rwandese and Burundians. There was a slight of Congolese, but they have other camps where, like, the majority will be probably Congolese. And I guess they were both Hutu and Tutsi, but were, was that a problem in the camp for people that were there? Not what I know of. Okay. Everybody was trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> and then what 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 kind of food did, was there for people? We we like you and will bring us peas. Peas. Yeah, the dried peas. peas. Dried peas, and they'll bring us dry corn. Now imagine you get a corn, a whole corn, a small corn. There's no way to, there was no much machine to ground to make into. <laughs> oh, it was just like kernels of dry yes, kernels it was, of corn? Yes, some days you get uh, the corn, mm-hmm. the, I don't even know how to say it. The kernels of corn. Yes, and there's sometimes you get the powder. Cornmeal. Yes, uh-huh. but sometimes it was hard like when they get the little corn because now they have to use their hand to produce. And you got... The, and I mean, it wasn't like a cafeteria where you go for meals. You have to, you get the just 
supplies and you'd have to figure out how to cook it yourself, right? Yes, there was not a kitchen. See, that was the big challenge because the, you get the meal for two weeks. Peas and corn, anything else? Sometimes they'll give beans. Okay, did you have any fruit or no fruit. tea? No teas. Um, <laughs> any meat? <laughs> I guess no that's meat. A silly question. <laughs> there was no meat. That okay. like that's what you get. And then you had to go find. You have to go get your own vegetables. Firewood. Give firewood. Water. Water. To cook. To cook. But like the UN uh, had to create a system where they build like water fountains, mm. like into like faucets where you could get water. Yes, but the water had a program to run too. So it was not like the whole day you go get the water. You have a so many times the water comes and they will shut it off. So imagine basically, for example, let's say downtown area. All the whole downtown area have one fountain. Mm. So people used to fight for water. Were there hundreds of people, thousands of people at these camps? Yeah, but take all the, what I was saying is they have divided them like into zip code. They say like six, three, or four have one fountain. Six three or six have their own fountain. Okay. So they run the water has time. I would sometimes the water will come seven and around like probably like ten or twelve, they'll shut off the water. So you have to come back at two to give water. <laughs> and you, you said that you get um your family would get food once according every the, couple weeks. To, yeah, according to the family size. And then you had to figure out how to how to manage your food. Okay. So if you run out of food, it's your problem. You're not going to go back and say, I need more food. That was so tough. Do you remember being hungry? Yes. This is really, sometimes I laugh through it because it's really hard. Like when now I think about it. Yeah. There's days like my mom will go like to bring a firewood or to actually plant some vegetable because like the food was enough. So she will leave like food at home for us to eat. But remember, there was a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And some of the kids didn't have like, let's say, the worst situation your parents pass when you're in the camp. You don't have no sermon of where to give food as a kid. Mm-hmm. So the kids you pray with, you follow them at their house and eat. So I was that kid. When my mom leave food, if she tell us to eat at 10, Nine, I called the whole <laughs> my whole friends. Let's come and eat. So we we'll eat, oh. and they'll eat like twelve. I don't got no food to eat. My mom yeah. is not home. Oh. There's no leftover. And uh, I remember one day I got so hungry. I went to my neighbor house, trying to eat. She said, "No, mm-hmm. you gotta wait. There's no food for you. Mm-hmm. I can't even for my whole family." So me and my little brother would just was probably like. I was a probably eight, and my little brother was probably like three. Mm-hmm. We just mm-hmm. sit there. Did when you were in in the quote unquote school? Did you learn English there? No. Okay. No English. <laughs> and what did it, you did it you? It was ha- all basic. As I say, it was on the system of like Burundi. So it was French and Kirundi. Did you learn? You math. Learned- Ma- everything, mathematics, reading, writing, in Kirundi. Kirundi. And did you ha- even know about America at that time when you were a kid? Did you know that it existed? or? So the way, I didn't know like America thing, but I know there was outside uh, 
Yeah. There's somewhere you can go to get a better life as a kid because the Jehovah Witness people who bring magazines. Oh, they came to the camp? Yes. They had uh they had basically their own church. Their own church. Americans? No, there was not they were uh, found the camp people. Yeah. So they build like uh, if you are Jehovah Witness, they will bring you books from like third country or the first country. Like US, Canada, all those areas. Mm-hmm. They would bring magazines. So the only thing we knew oh with our American was heaven. Mm. <laughs> because you see you you flipping through that magazine, you see apples and those apples not like the apples I see here. It was a beautiful I'm not sure if it was because of hunger. You never had an apple before at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-mm. It was so big. Oh. And you see all fruits. Or tafut bananas they put in the basket like basically like advertisement the way they do. Yeah. I wish it would go there. Okay, and then you actually did come here in two thousand and five? Two thousand seven. Seven. Yes. So Okay. Well let let's I think we need to take another short break and then let's come back and let's talk about how it was that you came here and how your life has been. Um you're listening to Stories of New Americans on one oh one point nine ninety four point one. Stories of New Americans. Brought to you in part by Samim Afghan Restaurant, featuring traditional Afghan cuisine and conveniently located on Manchester Road in the Grove. Stories of New Americans. Brought to you by Hacking Law for individuals who want to come and stay in the U.S. Hacking Law fights for immigrants every day. Visit them at hackingimmigrationlaw.com. This is Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Okay, welcome back. We're talking with Rosie about her experience in the refugee camp in Tanzania. But then you came here in 2007. How did that come about? Did, did, did Americans uh, come and interview people in the camp about coming here? And I guess your parents had an interview. Yeah, like they interview everybody, all yeah. the family members. Oh, the kids too. The kids too. So because like, uh, sometime it was like before the process start, it was way long. Like probably in two thousand two, they had like the United uh, United UN come and as 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 do as a, uh, I would say like a evaluation. To see who qualified for what, mm-hmm. so after that, the people who was qualified mostly was those people who escaped in 1972. People that qualified to come here as here. refugees, yes. legal refugees, legal refugees. Yeah. So after that, uh, they will conduct interview. Some people will get a pending case. Some people will get a pass. So we had a clinical basically for a series of interviews. Mm. So that's why, if you can, it's funny, because if you look most of the refugees, you'll find them have January 1st, the first. For their birthday? For their birthday. Yeah. Because they, most of them, they, they don't remember when they were born. And uh, trauma was the biggest. I feel like most, most adults who live in the U.S. from the refugee camp, 
they have a lot of trauma. It just, they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they don't speak about it. And most of the time as working with the refugees, I always encourage them. I'm like, you need help. But they don't. Yeah. Well, it's it's not part of the culture, I guess. Yeah. So. Well, okay, let's let's not jump ahead. Let's, you, you came, you, obviously your family got refugee status. You came here in 2007. What was, can you, can you remember the first days here in St. I guess you came right to St. Louis, right? Yes. What was that like? So let me, let me start from uh, the journey to get here. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, thinking about America, I didn't think there was tree. Trees? Trees. Really? No, 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 no. That's the, uh, the way that like, we see the books, yeah. the magazine. We had a whole different picture of what is America. So we thought was we're going to sleep, wake up, brush our teeth, just like Basically, we live in a paradise. <laughs> Not nobody, quite. <laughs> nobody thought they was coming here to work. Mm. They wasn't thinking of. They thought just things going to be hand now to them. The myth they say money grow up on the tree, grow on the tree. It's not a lie. We throw money. I personally <laughs> throw money grow up on the trees. <laughs> I spent there was. I wasn't thinking like it's the trees I see outside. I thought it was a special tree that grow money. <laughs> <laughs> So I remember we we came uh, we got we passed through Kenya, so we stayed there for two days, like clinical evaluation and prepare us how life America was going to be, basically to teach us. Since we don't have no word of English, they will ask us when somebody asks you something, say no English. <laughs> That's what they told you to say. Yes, <laughs> like really, and even to, even today, you find somebody will tell you. No English because that's what their brain is trained <laughs> to say. That's the word, the first response. So, I, we got here in St. Louis in the night. Mm. So, I remember like waking up in the morning on a small bed from the International Institute and look in the kitchen, one chicken <laughs> and the just probably like few fruits and the dining table with we had like six chairs and the set with just like one box of um cup and um plates and like a little basically like a, a kitchen pot mm-hmm. box. I sit down, I look outside, I see grasses that was in Hodioman at that time. I told Papa, is this the transition to America? <laughs> <laughs> this is America. <laughs> My dad looked at me. Really, she was like, Rosie, this is actually America. I told my dad, no, this is not America. I just first night was passed to New York airport. Like, you see all this beautiful stuff. Oh, you passed through New York Yes. Airport. So my brain was like, we're going to live like New York airport. Mm. All fancy, all cement, no trees, no grass. Woo! It was tough. It was really hard. Okay, so you started school then. School was nightmare. Nightmare? Yes. Okay. What grade did they put you in? Sixth grade. Okay. Imagine you walk into a class. I really, I'm very helpful to have missed 
I had a, uh, a teacher, her name was Miss Terry in the Baban. That was a two teacher. I think now when I look back to it, it was an uh, African-American lady, a single lady. And um, I think the other teacher was probably from Afghanistan or if not Afghanistan, they was from Iraqi. So there was our, they don't speak our language. Mm -hmm. We don't speak their language. So we got, the bus would drop us at the, at the nearby the cafeteria. We follow other kids. We don't understand what they're saying. We just go and see, sit down. Every kid left who was the one <laughs> sitting in the cafeteria. Were there other newcomers like you? Yes, we had, uh, we had two kids from Eritrea. And there was three of us from uh, Burundi. And we had like two other students from, I believe, Burma. Burma? Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's like you have a mixture of kids who don't speak no English because there was no such thing as welcome, welcome school. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how my teacher survived. Because with you you for us it was like we I felt like I was in a prison mm. because you had to sit they remember in the camp I was everywhere yeah I wake up I just know that I have to go home when the sun go down yeah and I gotta go to school probably because there was a lot of kids and a few teachers yeah they just have a session like People, some kids go from seven to you're 12. You're talking about ES, oh, you're in the camp? In the camp, okay. yeah. So then coming here yeah. at the ESL class, you got to sit there almost like eight hours, and we were sitting in one classroom. Oh, yeah. So sometimes our teacher would talk to us. We get so angry at her because we don't understand what she's saying. Mm -hmm. And I believe she was getting frustrated too. You have, at that time, she was one teacher with six kids. Mm -hmm. Two kids with one language, two kids with another language. And other two, another like two, three kids with different yeah. mixture language. Well, you were 10 or 11 years old then. so I was 11. 11. Okay. How long did it take you to kind of start to feel comfortable with English? Probably not that long. Mm -mm. I think probably like a year I started picking up. Okay. But not the nice words though. Not the nice words. <laughs> I really feel sorry for my teacher because the words that we picking up was... From outside. Oh. Like, who remember one day I told my teacher to shut up? Mm. Did you know what you I were saying? I didn't know what I was saying. Yeah. And I remember she looked so angry. Oh. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. Oh, gosh. That's the word I say. I don't know. No English. <laughs> no English. No English. That's the fault. Yeah, it was really hard. But after you learn English, I think you, like so many immigrant kids and refugee kids, be Came, you became an, basically an interpreter for your parents, right? Yes. And you still do to this day. Yes. So was that, how did you feel about that? <laughs> so like, it was challenge. Uh, basically, your parents rely on you. Yeah. Even up, up to today, our parents rely on us to translate the word to word to them. And it must be really hard for them because they're used to being the authority and, you, you know, it's just... It's a weird dynamic. Yes, that's the way like now kids act up because the the game shift. Yeah. They are the parent and the parents are the kids Ooh. when it comes to US. Uh because they don't understand the language. Like you piss me off, I'm not translating for you. Yeah. So it was it was hard. Yeah. It's still hard for most 
for most of the parents. They can't yeah. even read their own letters. Yeah. Like, that's why I even feel so like sometimes they will get a really important letter. Yeah. And if I decide to not read, they don't know what it's saying. No, it's, it's, it's difficult for parents and kids because the parents, they, they really feel a loss of um, authority and control. And the kids get, you know, they get, they get busy with life here. They can't always drop everything and go read their parents' mail. So I, I see it's really a challenge. Yeah, it's really a challenge. Okay, well, in the interest of time, I, we could talk about this all day, but we, we don't have all day. So let's talk about how you, like, you finished school, and then you talk about what you decided to study in college and how that led you to where you are now. So basically, when I went to Sudan International, uh, when I was in Sudan, I remember there was one of, a student from Tanzania who came to study. His name was Peter. He was like, Rosie, why won't you do something with the international role? I'm like, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, it was, I'm like, that's not where I want to go. At that time, I want to be a teacher. Oh. Yeah. So I told her, I told him, I want to be a teacher. I don't want to be, I don't want to have to start, you know, feeling misery. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to remember. Basically, that's yeah. what I was running from. Yeah. I know I have been helping my parents and do other work, work beside, you know, that I could be a good fit. Like, he told me, like, I can do better and help other refugees. But I was, I didn't want to go through that path because it was really tough, especially when we got here. Our parents had a hard time, no transportation, nothing. So... In the wrong run, I said I go to college. At, I went to Webster. I went there as like an education teacher for preschool. Okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. So then uh, they have this program they call SLED. Uh, it's a program basically like it gives opportunity for youth to kind of learn their field before you kind of get into the field you want to go to. Me taking like a... Uh, a pre, I I told they put us in there was is a summer camp where we can we do like teaching stuff. I told myself I can't do this. It was it's not like home where kids listen to the teacher and disciplines. With real kids, they have their own world they're living here in. Like you can't punish a child. You have to actually obey the law. There is a law to put in there. To kind of protect the kids. It's not like you're going to be abusing them, but they don't, um, they don't have, most of the kids, they didn't have manner, manners. Manners. Yes. So I'm like, I can't do this. I love kids, but this is not the kind of background i coming from in the kids I was teaching. There was basically American kids. Oh, okay. So you transitioned <laughs> so into. I transitioned into international relations. Where now I um, I love helping people. I my my dream is actually to work for the UN. Okay. I want to actually one day to go back in camps or like in any other refugees camps, trying to give them the help they need because I sometimes I still feel like people who need help they don't get the help. Yeah, you know that from experience. But yes. okay, we only have a few minutes left. The time has gone so fast, but. Talk about what you're doing now. What, what's your job now and how? So, 
right now I work as a case management at Bilingual International Assistance Services. I actually help out. I actually do something I'm happy every single day doing, helping out refugees, uh, getting them to full stamp, help them get a full stamp, uh, apply for Medicaid and other and jobs, jobs, and finding a place to live, finding them place to live. Re- I actually some most of the time I end up spending time reading the mails and the oh. emails <laughs> <laughs> because they get a bunch of emails and mails that they don't understand what it's saying. Yeah, and I remember having a client who was behind for seven thousand dollars yeah. in the rent, oh. and which was a challenge for yeah. her too because due to language barrier. Um, most, most time, like when you're in programs, they assumed because you apply for this uh, job, they not they not even know that somebody really assists you to apply this kind of, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, probably housing or job. Uh, then they end you ending up uh, having a lot of responsibilities that you don't know. This is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. This is what I need to report. Yeah. So I really enjoy doing what I do okay. every single day. Now. What's life like in Burundi now? Is it, is it more peaceful? As the government claim, yeah. Okay. They say it's peace, but I haven't been back to Burundi. You haven't so been back, okay. I won't say like I, I, I don't mm. have no. Experience there was yeah, there right was now. an a peace agreement, and they there's power sharing in the government, and I think I read that thirty they, thirty percent of the Senate and the Assembly has to be women too, but they have a you know, quote unquote Hutus and Tutsis are kind of represented in the government, which I guess is good. I think after the Arusha mm-hmm. agreement, so they kind of, right now they call themselves democracy. Yeah. So I'm not sure how democracy they are yeah. because I am not there. Yeah. I have a family members who still live there who right now they, they're in the refugee camp, so I'm not sure what kind oh. of peace is there, even when they say it's peace. Well, we, we only have a minute left here, but um, I wish we had more time. But can you maybe... Tell me, what's the best and worst thing about living in America for you? Right now, I was like, I don't have that, that much because I understand the language and the culture. But back then, not, not having sense of transportation or not understanding the language was frustrating. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about America, you have opportunity to change wherever you want to go, mm. wherever you want to be. Mm-hmm. You can be who you are, yeah. basically. But there's a lot of challenges for new yeah. refugees. It's not easy. Navigating but for yeah. systems. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to end it, I guess. I really appreciate your time, Rosie. Yeah. Thank you for coming. This I wish we had more time. Thank you for having but, me. But uh, yeah, thank you for for your hard work to help people that are kind of in the same situation you were 15 years ago. Okay. Thank you all for listening. They've been listening to Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL 101.9, 94.1.